0: And our comfort, isn't it, that He will hold us fast. You know, we, uh, we often sing, as, as well we should, of the desire to commit ourselves wholeheartedly to the Lord, I'll follow Him no matter, matter what, no turning back, I uh, love the Lord above all things, but ultimately our hope and our comfort is that Christ is holding us and that He loves us and that will never change. Amen and amen. Well, good morning, everyone. I'm Slade Reinhardt. I'm the director of Grow and Connect Ministries here at Fellowship Bible Church, and it is my distinct, uh, distinct? That's probably not the right adjective, is it? It's my awesome privilege. I'll go with that. My awesome privilege to preach God's word. I guess it's a distinct one, too. I don't know. Uh, before I get into the message, uh, I do want to share with you guys uh, a couple of things This week, if you are a subscriber to FBC Weekly, which is our our weekly update on on what's happening in the church, then you uh, have already heard all this, but I'm just going to cover briefly a bit of it uh, anyway. Next Sunday, uh, Sam Shaw, our interim lead pastor, will begin his ministry here, so we are all excited about that, looking forward to that with great anticipation, and uh, he wanted to inform the congregation about what he's planning to do once he gets here. Because uh, his his task is not simply to be a caretaker until such a time as we hire a, a permanent lead pastor. His, his task is to help us to heal and to, to grow and to become uh, healthy and strong. So uh, a couple of things he wanted me to highlight today in preparation for his arrival next week is that when he gets here, the first thing he's going to do is spend a few months in listening conversations And what he means by that is he wants to meet with as many people in the congregation as possible. He has a very aggressive schedule that he's uh, setting up. As many people in the congregation as possible, he wants to hear about you, hear about your family, uh, hear about your experience at FBC, your concerns, your hopes, and just really get a feel for the pulse of the congregation. And in addition to that, he's going to conduct a church health survey Uh, I don't know how broadly that will go, whether it will be just a random uh, smattering of people in the congregation or not, but uh, that survey is going to evaluate or assess the health of FBC based on eight biblical qualities. Uh, If I knew them, I'd share them with you, but I'll just assume that they're biblical qualities. (laughs) Just kidding. I I trust him implicitly. I really do. Uh, He's probably watching online and thinking, "What's what's the matter with that guy? So he's going to do a church health survey, and then one other thing he wanted me to highlight is that uh, soon after he gets here, uh, it'll probably take a little while for him to get his feet under him and get to know people, but he is going to set up a transition team, which will be a group of people from the congregation that will help to shepherd the church through this time of transition. Uh, The transition team will look at uh, and celebrate how God has blessed FBC, as well as uh, examining any... uh, unresolved issues or barriers to health that might exist and they'll be involved with him and just Getting a feel for things and then and then prayerfully deciding where we go next so keep that in mind uh, If you are not part of fbc weekly this week, you'll probably get an email with that text anyway Because we're going to send a church-wide email out this week Okay, uh, there was one other thing no, I'll I'll pass that. I'm gonna leave y'all in suspense Come back next week. <laughs> so, uh, we, today I'm going to be wrapping up this short sermon series on the miracles of Jesus. Just looking at a miracle of Jesus each, each week and seeing what that reveals to us about the Lord. And today we're going to be in Luke chapter 7, verses 11 through 17. So if you're not there now, go ahead and turn there in your Bibles, Luke 7, 11. When I was a kid, that was my favorite store. My uh, My grandmother... Worked at a 7-Eleven in Gladewater. And she would give me and my brothers any comic books that happened to get torn or or wrinkled up. And so we were just, you know, we were in heaven. Okay, enough about me. I'm sorry. (laughs) Luke chapter 7. Is everybody there? Just say amen. All right, that's 73% of you. We'll go ahead. Starting in verse 11, it says this. Soon afterward... He went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier And the bearer stood still, and he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread throughout the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Amen. I'll get back to that text in just a minute, but first I want to tell you another story involving some miracles. In 1856, trouble was brewing in the North African country of Algeria. At that time, it was known as French Algeria because they were under the rule of France. The trouble that was brewing was coming from a group of Muslim shamans called Marabouts who were trying to foment popular rebellion against French rule. Now, these Marabouts gained influence over the people because they were able to perform so-called miracles and tricks that the people couldn't explain, so they assumed that they had some powerful magic, and they were willing to listen to what they had to say. The French government decided to fight fire with fire, so they called upon the greatest magician in France, and I'm going to apologize in advance for any people who speak French out there because this will not come out right, but his name was Jean-Eugène Robert Houdin. From now on, I'll just call him Houdin, and we'll go with that. He was retired at the time, but the French government persuaded him to come out of retirement and go to Algeria because they wanted him to convince the people of Algeria that French magic was more powerful than the magic of these Muslim wizards. So Houdin agreed to do that. He arrived at the capital city, and he arranged to perform at a local theater. They spread word to many of the influential chieftains as well as a lot of the marabouts that a French wizard had come into town to challenge the power of the Marabouts. Well, Houdin performed trick after trick that absolutely astonished the Algerians. He produced a cannonball out of a top hat, he uh, displayed an empty bowl that then miraculously filled with coffee, and on and on. The Marabouts couldn't explain that or duplicate it, so it did appear that French magic was indeed more powerful than the magic of the Marabouts. But his greatest test was yet to come. He was invited to join a very powerful sheik in the area to come and see him face to face away from the controlled environment of the theater. So Houdin agreed to do that and again he performed trick after trick that the sheik and his marabout could not explain and could not duplicate So it did appear again that this French magic was more powerful. Well, enraged and desperate to retain his influence, the Marabout then challenged Houdin to a duel, a real wizard's duel. Thank you for those of you who've seen Sword in the Stone. A real wizard's duel. So they both loaded their pistols, but before anyone said fire and before Houdin was ready, the Marabout turned to Houdin and fired his pistol. And the Frenchman merely looked at, up at him and smiled with the bullet between his teeth. Absolutely and utterly ashamed and defeated, the marabout had to, of course, retire from the battle after that. The sheik then pledged his undying and unfailing loyalty to France. Word spread, and eventually, at least for this time, revolution was averted because Houdin's mission was successful. Now the reason, of course, that Houdan was so successful is because the people of Algeria thought that he was performing miracles. They thought this man was magical. But I think all of us would agree that he was not actually performing miracles. I mean, even when we see a magician or illusionist do something that we can't explain and that we can't duplicate, we still recognize that they're doing whatever they're doing according to the laws of nature. They are following science. They're just doing things that we don't understand or know about. They're not truly doing miracles. But the miracles of Christ are in a completely different category. For one thing, Christ didn't perform his miracles in controlled environments. He wasn't on a stage. He wasn't in a theater. He didn't send people ahead of time to a town in order to prepare things or set people up. Jesus did his miracles completely and totally without any preparation and without any outside help. They were truly supernatural, truly contradicting and superseding the laws of nature. And that's why his miracles are a revelation of his divine power, because they are true and genuine. So let's get back to this text in Luke, and together let's marvel at the astonishing divine power of the Lord Jesus Christ. The miracle story begins when Jesus meets a burial procession in Nain. Now, the passage right before this is, uh, tells the story of Jesus healing a centurion's servant while he was in Capernaum. And then in verse 11, it picks up and says, Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain. Nain was a little town. It's actually only mentioned once in all of Scripture right here. It was a little town about 20 miles from Capernaum, so a, a pretty good day's journey on foot. And the reason Jesus even came to Nain is because he was traveling throughout Galilee, preaching, teaching, and healing people, spreading, of course, the news about the kingdom of God. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Luke mentions that his disciples were with him, as you would expect, but he adds that a great crowd also went with him. It's a reminder that at this point, Jesus' fame had spread pretty broadly. So people wanted to be around him. People wanted to see what he was going to do next. They wanted to hear what he might do next. Now, Nain was not near any big city. So I assume that this crowd gathered from the smaller villages that he passed through on the way to Nain, as he probably, again, taught and preached and healed in those towns. They decided, well, we'll just go along and keep seeing what this guy is doing. And I think it's noteworthy that often in the Gospels you see two groups of people near Jesus. The disciples and the crowd. One group, of course, the disciples, follows Jesus because they believe him to be the Messiah. They want to commit their lives to him. They're following him in the, in the sense of, I am abandoning the life that I had once. And I'm going fo- <clears> to <throat> follow you and trust in you. But the other group, the crowd is just fascinated by Jesus. They're interested in what he has to say. They're fascinated by what he can do. But they're not willing to make a decisive commitment to him. They're not willing to put aside their normal lives or what they were doing beforehand to say, I'm going to follow this man. They're content to be spectators of Christ's ministry. They can believe that he was a great teacher. And even as this text will mention in just a few seconds, they believe that he's a great prophet. But they're not willing, by and large, to take the next step and admit that he is indeed the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And if that's you this morning, if you are interested or fascinated by Jesus but distant from him, not quite willing to put your faith in him, I I urge you to take him up on the glorious offer he makes. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Life is and forgiveness and rest are found in christ but only through faith in christ not through simply knowing that he existed or being fascinated by what he did okay back to the story so jesus gets close to the town gate and he encounters this burial procession a man was being carried out of town to be buried since dead bodies were ceremonially unclean typically in israel the burial places would be outside the town so that you didn't have that spot there where you could become ceremonially unclean by touching anything. And it was common for people to be buried on the day that they died. Luke also adds a few details to show the depth of sadness that this procession represented. He mentions, for instance, that the dead man was the only son of his mother. Now, as you and I know, and as unfortunately I know that some of you in this congregation have experienced, the death of a child is the greatest grief that anyone can experience but on top of it being the death of a child it was this woman's only son and then on top of that Luke adds that the mother was a widow so in addition to the emotional wreckage caused by first losing her husband and then losing her only son she would have also been feeling the sting of fear and insecurity because her means of provision now gone as well. She would have to rely completely on the charity of her extended family and her neighbors. And perhaps reflecting that the mother was well loved in the town, Luke does mention that a considerable crowd from the town was with her. So this is really interesting the way this is unfolding. We have two large processions. They come face to face right at the town gate of Nain. There's this procession following the Messiah, and there's this procession following this man who has just recently died. In fact, Warren Wearsby described this very poetically this way. Two only sons met. One was alive, but destined to die. The other was dead, but destined to live. In the next part of the story, Jesus raises a man from the dead. Now, there are certainly miracles that are more visually impressive than someone being raised from the dead. I think, for instance, of when Jesus was on the raging sea and he simply commanded the waves and the winds to stop. That was very visually impressive. But I don't think there's anything that's more powerful than reversing death itself. At this point in Luke's gospel, Jesus had already shown that he, was, that he could command evil spirits to leave a person. <clears throat> he could heal sickness. And he could control nature. But now we're going to witness his rule over our very existence. Look at verses 13 to 15 again with me. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Every miracle of Jesus reveals something about his glory, some aspect of his identity. And the first glory of Christ that we encounter in this story is the glory of his compassion for suffering people. As I mentioned a few weeks ago, there never was and there never will be a ministry as important as the ministry of Jesus of Nazareth. Alone among every man that has ever lived or ever will live... Jesus could rightly claim to be truly and essentially important. Every other person in comparison to him is just dirt. Jesus could have said to people, I'm too important for this. I've got better things to do. Because truly he was too important for any and all of us. And truly he did have better things to do. But as you know, Jesus was never self-important. He was never condescending in the way that he treated people from the highest to the lowest members of society. And he didn't rush past this burial procession to go find a place to preach to the crowd that was following him. He didn't even take advantage of this already assembled crowd to stop the procession and teach to them there. Our Lord, the good shepherd, the king of kings, the creator of the universe, instead expressed pure, undiluted love in this moment of sadness. He saw the grieving mother. He looked on her. He paid attention to her. And the Bible says he had compassion His heart was moved with affection and love for this woman. His motivation for this miracle was simply that, compassion for this bereaved woman. He saw her. He saw her grief. Undoubtedly, he perceived that this was her only son and that she was a widow, and he was determined to do something to help her. As you know, God is especially concerned with caring for the poor and the needy, the most vulnerable in our society. That's why he says, for instance, in James 1, that caring for widows and orphans is pure and undefiled religion. And the Gospel of Luke consistently highlights the ministry of Christ to the weakest members of society. This is yet another example of that. Now, before Jesus did anything, I want you to notice that he spoke to the woman. Once again, showing her that she was important in his eyes, showing her that he cared about her, showing her that his main interest was not impressing the people around, his main interest was in caring for this woman who was so deeply hurting. He encouraged her to pause in her grieving, do not weep, giving her at least the comfort of a kind word and perhaps letting her know that he would do something about her problem. So the first thing he did was to touch the bier. Now the bier was a stretcher or a plank that they would use to carry dead bodies to the burial place. So he touched that and the bearers took took that to be a signal that they should stop walking. So everyone paused, no doubt wondering what in the world this teacher was going to do next. And before I go on, I do want to draw attention to another small detail. The fact that Jesus touched the bier, that he touched that plank or that stretcher. Since there was a dead body on that plank, Jesus technically made himself ceremonially unclean by touching it. Or did he? Was Jesus ever ceremonially unclean? You know what I mean by ceremonially unclean? That's whenever you do something that the law prescribes as something you should not normally do. And after you do it, there's something you have to do to become clean again before you can worship freely at the temple of God. Was Jesus ceremonially unclean? Throughout his ministry, Jesus did things like that. He would touch someone with leprosy, which the law would say, you don't do that, or you're unclean. He would touch someone with a disease. He would touch someone who was dead. Was he ceremonially unclean? Well, you probably know the answer to that is no. Jesus was never ceremonially unclean. And the reason for that. Is because when Jesus touched a person, he reversed what it was that made them unclean in the first place. So if this man had remained dead, yes, indeed, Jesus would have been unclean. But this man wasn't going to remain dead. Life was going to come back into his body. So when Jesus touched a person with leprosy, he didn't become unclean because he removed the uncleanness that was in that person. He reversed the condition that caused them to be unclean in the first place. That's why we never see Jesus going through any cleansing rituals that are prescribed, for instance, in Numbers 19. After Jesus touched the beer, the people carrying the body stopped, as I mentioned, and then, and then, Jesus brought this dead man back to life. Now, this is the part of the story where I I would wish that I had even 30% of the energy and enthusiasm of Jordan Johnson To be able to convey to you guys how awesome and glorious this is. So I'm not going to try to be Jordan. He's his own person. But man, when he gets up there and he's talking about God's greatness and goodness, there's just, mm, there's energy. Anyway, so I want you to at least feel that, even if I can't do it. This is amazing beyond description. Jesus told this man to get up. Basically, he said, live. And this man lived life came back into his body and this is a man whose spirit was gone from his body so that means wherever that spirit was jesus was commanding it to return to the body whatever decomposition had begun jesus was telling it to reverse itself the heart had stopped he was commanding it to go again all of the organs had stopped he was commanding them to start again life returned to this man who was absolutely totally dead praise god in heaven for the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice that it was so simple. And it was so easy. Once again as with, as with all of the miracles of Jesus. You don't see him having to work up some power. I remember years ago watching a. a I don't remember if it's a movie or television show. About the life of Jesus. One of the many adaptations that have been made. And uh, Jesus was about to do a miracle. And the actor stopped and he closed his eyes. And kind of took a deep breath. And composed himself, and then he did the miracle as if he had to kind of gather, gather up some power. But in Scripture, you actually don't ever see that. There's no pause. There's no, man, hold on, I've got to get ready for this. I've got to really just pray. I've got to set myself aside. I need to fast for a day. Jesus effortlessly and easily and powerfully performed this miracle. There were actually only two instances in the entire Old Testament of people raising someone else from the dead. So this is the first time since those two instances that this has happened. Now those two times were true prophets of God as well. The first one was Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 17. He raised a widow's only son. That should sound familiar because that's what Jesus did, right? He raised a widow's only son. But here's how Elijah did it. Elijah cried to the Lord and then he laid his body on top of the boy, probably trying to get his uh, body warm again. And nothing happened. So then he stretched himself out on the boy again. And he cried to the Lord. And nothing happened. Then he did the same thing a third time. And then the Lord gave life back to this boy. There was effort. It was a process. Elijah had to try over and over again for something to happen. And then in 2 Kings chapter 4, Elijah's successor, Elisha, raised a woman's only son. Again, that should sound familiar. Uh, this time the woman wasn't a widow, but she had been barren until she met Elisha. So in this instance, Elisha prayed, and then he put his body on top of the child. And it says warmth began to return to the child, but he wasn't yet back. So then Elisha got up and he walked around the house, probably praying again, crying out to the Lord. Then he came back, and then he put his body on the child again, and then the Lord gave life back to the boy. So just like Elijah, Elisha had to put effort into this miracle working. There was time, there was process. It took multiple times crying out to the Lord, multiple times trying these physical actions. But not Jesus. He didn't even touch this man. Young man, I say to you, arise. No effort, no process, no ceremony. Jesus commanded the man to come back to life. And to make it clear to the assembled crowd that he had, the man not only sat up, But he spoke, he spoke, oh my goodness, he spoke. (laughs) Every English teacher just uh, cringed. The man sat up and he spoke. Now, what would your first words be? Where am I? What am I doing here? What just happened? I don't know. It doesn't say. It wasn't important. The point was that he was now verifiably, empirically, observably alive. Just as Jesus commanded water to turn into wine in Cana. Just as he commanded the wind and the sea to stop on the Sea of Galilee. And just as he commanded demons to leave the two possessed men in Gadara. Jesus simply commanded this man to live. And death, the undefeated foe of mankind, had to yield its captive to him. And then Luke says Jesus gave him to his mother. I suspect that the hearers of the, the, excuse me, the the bearers of the body were too stunned to do anything, probably the crowd as well. So as they were all just standing there, dumbfounded, probably mouths agape, Jesus helped the man to his feet and handed him to his mother, completing the reunion that he made possible by his divine power. And the final part of the story, it says that Jesus' reputation grows. Since there was a crowd following Jesus into Nain, and there was a crowd for the burial, there were just plenty of eyewitnesses to this event. It's no surprise that this gave Jesus even more renown in Israel. Look again at verses 16 and 17. Fear seized them all. And they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Fear seized the crowd. The fear that comes from witnessing firsthand a manifestation of the awesome power of God. This is the fear of reverence and awe at being in the presence of a being far more powerful than you can imagine. It isn't the fear of punishment, it isn't the fear of pain, this is the fear, the awe-inspiring fear of, I have seen the living God intervene in my space and in my time. The people gathered at the gate responded to that fear by glorifying God. The true, pure fear of God, the awe-inspiring reverence for God, it moves people to worship Him instead of driving them away. They gave honor to Jesus by calling him a great prophet, but as you and I know, he was much more than just a prophet. But it's understandable that they would categorize him that way because at that time, even the disciples couldn't conceive of a category called God incarnate. It just was not in their mental faculties at this point. So they praised God for raising up a prophet among them. They praised God that he had visited his people. After 400 years of prophetic silence, God had sent a man into their midst again, a man commended by God with these mighty works. With excitement and enthusiasm, people spread the word about this prophet to everyone who would listen to them. And his fame spread throughout Israel. And think about the resurrected man. He would have told everyone he knew, I was dead I was dead. My spirit had left my body and then suddenly my eyes open and I'm laying on a stretcher outside of town with a crowd around me and I'm well. I'm back. I'm here. Can you believe it? This man, Jesus, brought me back to life. Now it seems, even in spite of all these miracles, that most of the crowd, most of the people in Israel categorized Jesus as something similar to John the Baptist. Phenomenal prophet of God, a man we respect, a man we admire, but not the Messiah, surely not the Messiah. Maybe it was because Jesus wasn't gathering troops or preaching judgment on Rome, but they just couldn't see him as the fulfillment of their prophecies. Surely he's just another in the long line of prophets who will tell us about the Messiah. He's awesome. He speaks God's truth. He can do mighty works, but he can't be the Messiah. Because he's not pushing Rome out. He's not rising up to set us free from our oppression. Because they can only see in the physical realm at this time. So Jesus' reputation continued to grow, but few believed on him as their savior. However, before we're too hard on these Jews, let's remember that it is only by God's mercy and God's grace and God's influence on our lives that any of us see Christ as the true Messiah and savior of the world. And his true identity is what this passage is all about. One truth that shines brightly in this text is this. Jesus is the compassionate Lord of life and death. Initially, my main point was going to be simply, Jesus is Lord of life and death. Because that's the main punch of this miracle. But Luke, under the inspiration of the Spirit, was careful to point out what motivated this miracle was Christ's compassion for this grieving woman. So I think it is important that we note that he is not simply Lord of life and death, but he is the compassionate Lord of life and death. Without his true and pure love, without his compassion, without his mercy, it would not be good news that he is Lord of life and death. But since indeed he is compassionate, tender, and loving, it is good news that he is Lord of life and death. He cares more deeply and more genuinely than your closest friend. And that means if you're facing a problem this morning, that has your emotions in the pit, you can call on him because he cares for you. He wants to help you in your time of need. And I can't guarantee that his answer will be exactly what you want, but I can guarantee that if you call on him, he will answer and he will give you grace in your time of need. Since he has authority over life and death, you can also be assured that he is powerful enough to handle whatever is beating you down. This beautiful episode in Nain is also a picture of Christ's power over spiritual life and death, not just physical. All of us are by nature spiritually dead. Ephesians 2, 4, and 5 says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, that's where we are naturally, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Just as Jesus called this man in name to life, Jesus calls us to life through faith in him. Ephesians 5.14 says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. John 5.21-22, Jesus said, Just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. <clears throat> and that last sentence is very key because again to again ties into jesus being lord of life and death not just physically But spiritually eternal life and eternal death. He is the one by whom all men will be judged If you haven't trusted in christ jesus for forgiveness and life Then you are dead in sin You're living under the wrath of god and you are simply awaiting eternal punishment in hell But if you trust in christ whose arms are wide open to anyone who will come to Him. He will forgive you. He will give you life and forgiveness. And then what you will be awaiting is an eternal inheritance with Him. You'll be united to the Son of God and privileged to fellowship with the triune God. Christ is the one who purchased our lives by His death on the cross, and He is the one by whom all men will be judged. Acts seventeen thirty one says that God commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. It is Jesus who determines your eternal destiny. He is the Lord of life and death, both physical and spiritual. So I encourage you today, if you have not done so, to look to him and live. Call on Him and live. Trust in Him and live. No force in the universe will ever be able to bring you to physical or spiritual death. Let me back up a little, the physical death part. No force in the universe will be able to bring you to physical death apart from His permission. That is why George Whitfield, the great Methodist evangelist once said, we are immortal till our work is done. And I would amend that a little bit to say we are immortal until God chooses to bring us home. If you are a child of God today, there is nothing that can end your life prematurely. God has you in his hand and no one can take you out of that. Spiritually speaking... Life has been granted to you as a child of God, and that will never be taken away. There is no force in the universe that can threaten that. In John chapter 10, 27, Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand, because Jesus is the Lord of life and death. All the devils in the world, in the universe, cannot threaten your position as a beloved child of God. Once you have trusted in Christ, you are united to Him, you are covered in His righteousness, and absolutely nothing can change that. Not even your own weakness, not even your own disobedience, not even your own sin. And praise God forevermore because of that. Because if your security in Christ was based just the tiniest bit on your faithfulness, then we're all lost because none of us is completely faithful. None of us is completely obedient. We must fall upon the Lord Jesus Christ who, as the song said, holds us fast. Be assured that everyone in Christ is safe in Christ forever. Jesus will not throw you out of his kingdom and no one can snatch you out of his hand. As I close in prayer in just a minute, I want to remind you that there will be people gathered up here in front of the stage who are ready and willing and desiring to pray with you. If you have any need, any burden, any trouble, any trial, please come forward and share that with one of the people on the prayer team. Experience the grace and the love of God that he wants to pour out on you to help carry that burden by someone else knowing it If you need to know more about Christ you want to know more about your Standing with him how you can be sure that you're a believer any of that Please come forward and talk to someone. They'll be up front So let's all stand and as I begin praying prayer team come on forward Our father in heaven father of our lord jesus christ in his name the savior the lord of life and death in his name we come to you in his name we stand before you on his merits oh lord god we come boldly to your throne we praise you for giving us grace this morning we praise you for the awesome privilege of gathering with your body we praise you god for showering us with your sufficiency I pray, Lord, that you would strengthen and renew the faith of every believer in this place. I pray, O oh God, that those who don't know you would be drawn closer by the strong and mighty Spirit of God. And Lord, I pray a special measure of grace on the people of Louisiana and the surrounding areas that are facing down this hurricane. God, I pray for your protection and peace. Lord, I don't know what your will will be, whether there will be widespread destruction or not, but I pray for grace. I pray, Lord God, for the believers in that, those places to be protected and strengthened. And I pray that their communities would be able to gather together to recover after whatever comes. Lord God, we love you and we thank you that you are our God. We thank you for salvation in Christ. Send us out this week to spread the good news that Jesus is Lord of life and death. May we rest and be comforted in that truth. Amen and amen. God bless you, my friends. Have a great week.